The Action Network Podcast, named Best Betting Podcast or Radio Show by the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association, and the number one show for the invested sports fan. Winner, winner, chicken dinner! You got real talent. Don't concentrate on golf. What's up, everybody, and welcome once again to the Action Network Podcast, the Golf Edition. I'm Jason Sobel from Golf Bet. He is Justin Ray, head of content from the 15th Club. And as always, odds courtesy of BetMGM on this podcast, the official odds provider of the Action Network Podcast. And uh, we're going to get into the Arnold Palmer Invitational. I, I look out my window here in Orlando, Justin, I can almost see it, not quite. I still have to drive to the course. I can't walk there, but uh, pretty close to me. We're going to get into our own DFS lineup for this week. But first, you got uh, a home field advantage with your picks. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go out on the town and see who's around. And, you know, it's it, it's just like when when you're overseas for the Open Championship and you're walking into the Ladbrokes and you happen to see the guy, it, the first guy you see, you're like, well, I got to bet him. I, I lost Many pounds on Bovan Pelt back in the day because I happened to see him walking down the street before walking into a Ladbrokes. You might need a recon mission at Rocco's Tacos, like going into the final round over there yeah. on Sand Lake, a place I've, I've been to a time or two. Mm-hmm. It's a little noisy later at night, goes from re- restaurant to more of a bar. Uh-huh. You, know, you, might, you might have some insider info there. You know, I, be, I'm going to do my best. Might be a guy getting a little loose. See what's going on. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, how was your weekend? And, uh, what did you think of this golf this weekend? That was a, a sneaky good Sunday of golf that we had. It was. I really enjoyed concession a lot. Um, yeah. Having been out there at the NCAA championship six years ago, uh, the first thought I had leaving the golf course was, I have no desire to play here because I'm not good enough to. <laughs> and second was, man, this is probably a little bit too tough for the college game, but this would be a really cool course for the PGA Tour. And it really showed on TV. I thought it was terrific. The variance in scoring was really cool. Um, there were a lot of guys who were going on career-high birdie streaks. Morikawa, Hovland had a big birdie streak at one point. But there were 152 doubles or worse, too. To put that in perspective, yeah. there were only 113 at Mexico City last year in the same event. So um, just, you know, I just thought it was it, just to see that kind of difference and know that there could be anything coming down the stretch. And I like Kyle Morikawa, but I was kind of hoping for a little – maybe he rinsed one coming down the stretch to make it a little more interesting. But, man, he was just too good. He, he was too good, too dialed in. His irons were outstanding and, you know, a well-deserved win. We need him to pull a Victor Hovland and make a quad at some point to make it a little bit more interesting. I completely agree about the concession. And, oh, by the way, and this is far down the road, but had uh, Bruce Cassidy, the owner of the concession, on our uh, radio show hitting the green on the PGA Tour Sirius XM channel last week before the event started and he, he said, you know, look, if, it, if all goes well and we know our course is going to show up well on TV and we think the players are going to like it, we hope the PGA of America is watching because now that the PGA Championship is not in August, now that it's in May, the weather's not too bad in May in Florida, you could probably pull off a PGA Championship. They're booked up for a while. And I will say PGA Championship would be very cool. I don't know, place called the concession if the PGA of America is really interested, a Ryder Cup might work at concession as well with all those twists and turns and uh, birdies are out there, but double bogeys are out there as well. could be a really good rider course, rider cup that, course. Someday. That's the first thing I thought when you went down that PGA of America. Road. Yeah. I mean, I know they've got the PGA championship locked in for a long time to come, but um, 
I, that's the first thing I thought too. And with that name, with that history, and more importantly, that golf course, I think it'd be a great place to have a Ryder Cup someday. Yeah, the problem is I think it'd have to be like the 2047 Ryder Cup. We were booked up for so long with that that, you know, they're, the kids who would actually play in that if they scheduled it right now aren't born yet. So uh, we've hey, got some Hey, time. I got a son on the way. You know, maybe, maybe he's in the, the Ryder Cup at the concession. Who knows? I like it. I like it. We're giving him a captain's pick already. I, you can manipulate the analytics because I'm sure that uh, by that point you, you'll be – you know, I'm kind of moving over to the U.S. side. So we're, d- we're done giving the European side tips and, and all the analytics. We'll move over listen, to the U.S. Listen, side. Listen, baby, I'm a mercenary, all right? Whoever cuts the check. <laughs> we'll just... <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any flag. i got a bank account. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So uh, the one thing that struck me this past weekend, Justin, was I, I have always separated. Maybe you have a more analytical way of separating the the very best players in the world from – the next year of really, really, really good players. Now, I've always thought the very best players in the world, and, and this can be fluid, this can be flexible, but the very best can win any place, any time. And you look at a Dustin Johnson who can win on a 6,800-yard course or a 7,800-yard course. Uh, you look at Justin Thomas who can win on a windblown course with water everywhere or on a big ballpark with no water at all and no hazards. And so – I was not sure about Colin Barkow. It doesn't mean he had to prove something to us, but I wasn't quite sure that the West Coast kid who'd grown up on the West Coast and went to college on the West Coast and won a major on the West Coast could come to Florida in his second career pro event in the state of Florida on sticky Bermuda grass and play as well as we've seen him in other places. He showed me something this week, and I think this has absolutely elevated him into that best of the best tier. What do you think? I would agree with that. I think all those names you mentioned, like guys who are, you know, at that very peak of the game, they all seem to have one thing that they do ball striking wise exceedingly well, right? Justin Thomas is, I I argue, one of the best iron players on the planet, maybe the best the last two years or so. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Rory McIlroy, elite driver of the golf ball, obviously, probably the best that we've seen last five, 10 years. Dustin Johnson in that same kind of vein. And really he's, he's elevated his iron play in the same kind of manner to where he's, on another plane there. Colin Morikawa is, I mean, he might be able to take that title as best iron player in the world away from Justin Thomas. He's close, isn't he? He's, he's exceptional. I mean, and his, his metrics are through the roof, um, especially considering just how few of starts he's at. He's had 41 PGA tour starts. The only player with more wins through 41 starts on the PGA tour in the last 35 years is tiger. I mean, that's an exceptional, you know, hit the accelerator at the beginning of your career. Um, on the big, on the you know the biggest tour in the world, um, that ball striking is going to carry him everywhere. And like you said, like the separating factor is a guy who it doesn't matter what golf course they go to, they can win essentially on any setup. Um, I think that's that's the class Morikawa has put himself in. I think that that kind of you know that kind of elite performance week in week out with his irons. I know the putter is the question, and you know he went to that saw grip. They talked a lot about that. Um, you know, that can kind of leave him from time to time. His putting numbers were really bad this season going into the week. And he really just put it above average and he won by what, four shots, three yeah, shots. Yeah, so yeah, um, yeah I, he, he's certainly putting himself into another echelon of player and to have a major and a WGC and you're not even 25 yet. I mean, that's, that's some pretty special company. He and Tiger are the only two to do that. Is there a Morikawa stat that jumps out at you as being, um, 
really relevant as far as just showing how, how great he's been. And the one I'll go to is very, very simple, but I, I think it kind of speaks volumes, which is like you said, four wins and 41 career starts and four missed cuts. I mean, when your ratio of wins to missed cuts is one to one, yeah. that tells you just how good that you have a high ceiling and a high floor, which is the stuff that the best players in the world do. I mean, it, it's just, it is. And to get there so quickly and so early in your pro career, I remember speaking with Colin, I believe it was his second or third pro event at the 3M Open in Minnesota a few years ago. And I came away like, wait, that kid's 22 years old. That No, he's like double that. He's 44. I, I just spoke to Matt Kuchar, but he looked like <laughs> Colin Morikow. I mean, he was so mature, so confident in himself, uh, so well-spoken, eloquent. He's wise. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever looked at a 22-year-old, which he was back then, and said, wow, he's very wise. I mean, they, they could be a smart kid, but he was wise beyond his years. So is there a stat that um, that you think shows just kind of how good Morikow has been? First off, all respect to everything Matt Kuchar's accomplished, but he wishes he had that <laughs> at any point. Um, two, two different stats, one performance-based, one history-based. Performance-wise, Collins led the field in strokes gain approach six times since joining the PGA Tour mm. in particular events, six times. No one else has done it more than four times in that span. That's how good he is in approach play. Historically, only seven guys now, including Colin, have four PGA Tour wins, including a major, before age 25, going all the way back to World War II. Only seven guys. Jack Tiger, Jerry Pate, Rory, Spieth, Justin Thomas. So that new wave, it's happened a little bit more frequently, guys having more success at a younger age. But that's a really small group of guys to win four times and have a major championship before they even get to 25. So, um, like I said, the iron play is the thing that separates him from his peers. Um, and, you know, I think we're, you know, barring, barring any kind of – injury or mental block or anything. This is a guy we're going to be talking about for a decade and more to come in this game. You could have given me, Oh, I don't know, 10,000 guesses and no offense to him. Cause he accomplished it, but I was not getting Jerry Pate on that list. Look, it, you got to be truthful with those lists. You can't just like pluck out the selected names you want, sure. but that's what we call like, I know and Jerry Pate had a, had a really good career, especially early on in his career as that mm-hmm. stat displays. In my TV career, I call that a, a graphic killer because you, you want that like list. You're like, all right, the list is Tiger, Rory, and then like Robert Gomez. You're like, oh, it's ruined. But it's not really ruined. It ain't nothing wrong with Robert Gomez. You know what I mean? Like it lessens the impact when it's, you know, a player that's not, you know, one of the best ever. So anyway. I, I know. I, I get it. And by the way, I loved your stat, which I didn't realize until Sunday night. I mean, I, we all would have known it, but we didn't kind of put it together. But other than Brandon Grace, who won the opposite field event in Puerto Rico, it was a great story in himself. And, oh, by the way, I mentioned on the pod last week. Thank you. Uh, Winner. You have not won a PGA Tour event over the past month if you did not attend Florida State or Cal. Pretty remarkable. That? I, I, I mean, it almost never happens to have – I think immediately after – you know, folks started realizing it. Um, I, I always get asked, like, when's the last time this happened on Twitter? I always get asked that. And I was like, yeah, just did. <laughs> Berger and Kepka did it at Florida State. So um, kind of crazy because it doesn't happen that often. I think, you know, the Georgia guys probably had it happen once or twice in the last decade or so with the amount of great players that have come out of that program. But, yeah, tough to do. And we saw two two stretches of back-to-back tournaments in a row. Kind of odd. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So, 
Uh, let's get to our Arnold Palmer Invitational preview here and talk about uh, the event at Bay Hill this week. Last year, windy, cold, only four players broke par for the week. By the way, as I wrote in my preview this week, and this is a very, very true story, I picked up Arnold Palmer uh, at the airport um, back in August of 2009, hopped in a car with me, and I mean, you're not just going to like throw the hard-hitting fastballs at Arnie at 8.30 in the morning. So you start by making some small talk. And in the news uh, at that point had been the fact that Bay Hill was going to get lengthened just a little bit. But really, they were just going to call two of the par fours, par fives, and go from a par 70 to a par 72 starting in 2010. And I looked at it, I said, does it matter? No, because people just want to see more birdies. So it doesn't matter, not one bit. And so I, I still think of that every time I, I speak in relation to par. So honestly, if they had never changed those holes last year, instead of four under winning, it could have been 12 over and we'd all be sitting here saying, oh my goodness, the carnage last year at the Arnold Palmer Invitational, 12 over won it, which honestly would have really been the same. I mean, yeah, okay, they lengthened four and 16 a little bit, but for the most part, they're basically the same holes. They just call them par fives instead of par fours now. So uh, we look back at what happened last year, and it was a very difficult golf course. What what kind of players are you targeting this week? Uh, I will say, though, to that point you made about par, the secret about golf is they play golf for centuries without even par, without par even existing. So it's just a, it's something to help guide the fans and the players like throughout the tournament, I guess. But it's really just another way to say score. You know, you know what, though? I will say, and it shocks me every time, but I will say that I've spoken with players like before a U.S. Open. God, they have us playing this par four. It's 540 yards. This is ridiculous. And I go, well, if it was a par five, do you think you'd birdie it? I said, well, yeah. Oh, it would be a short par five. Said, okay, so just go make a four. Who cares what it's called? And, and I really, for all the criticism that the USGA has gotten over the years about course setup, and a lot of it is uh, is due criticism. I, I get it. But the concept of par three and a halfs and par four and a halfs, I've always thought is something that needs to be done at more golf tournaments. I, I love it when it's like, what's par? I don't know. Get it in the hole. I, just play the hole as few shots as you can and then go on. And so, yes. The, I, the squares and the circles around the numbers don't actually mean anything in the end. No. It's just a it's just a way to you know keep track of what you're doing. The numbers add up. It's the same regardless if it's you know that five is a par, or a bogey. You know either either way. But right. So um, 284, 284 won here last year yeah, instead of four. How's that? Why not? Yeah. And it could have been it could could have been minus four if it was a par seventy would have been plus four whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah. No. To go back to the players that I'm targeting this week. Um, you know uh, the as you've grown accustomed the last few weeks as I've been coming on here, um, I like to look at the average rank of champions at a particular event um, in terms of certain performance things, performance statistics, and compare it to the PGA Tour average. Um, Arnold Palmer Invitational, Bay Hill, uh, strokes in off the tee, less favored than normal, which mm -hmm. may seem a little bit, when you think about the winners here, uh, Rory McIlroy a few years ago, uh, Jason Day at his peak, Tiger Woods eight times, you probably think, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, strokes gained off the team might, you'd think it might mean a little bit more. It's actually less important than average. Strokes mm -hmm. gain approach is more significant than average, particularly long irons, which I have my favorite stat about this golf course I'll get into later. Um, and strokes gained putting has been more important than normal too. So 
basically what it tells me, and you look at the driving accuracy numbers of, of certain players when they've won, you can be wild off the tee here and get away with it. If you're able to perform out of the rough with your irons, you're going to have an advantage over the opposition. So immediately, maybe that makes you think of Bryson at Wingfoot last year, where, you know, the rough was really tall and it was a problem for everybody, but for him, he's hitting seven irons instead of four or whatever it might be. And he had a huge advantage and ended up blowing the field away. So um, iron play more important than normal uh, driving accuracy, way less important than normal. Um, and putting tends to lean a little bit more this week than normal. All right. So uh, let's start at the top of the field. And I, I want to see if you've got a stat for these guys, uh, the best long iron players, and we'll get to that, but uh, let's start at the top of the field. Rory McIlroy, the favorite this week, followed by uh, Victor Hovland. And we've got, uh, of course, Tyrrell Hatton up there and uh, a few other of the, the bigger names. Um, I, it's hard not to like Rory. I mean, I, I, I certainly like Rory this week. I just can't like him at eight or nine to one, whatever he's going off at uh, when you're listening to this right now, just because the win equity hasn't been there. And so you look at Rory and say, okay, well, he's won here before, but I mean, and, and it's a, a big, but He's been playing well. He just gets there in different ways. And, you know, can I be sure that Rory McIlroy isn't going to be 23rd after Friday's second round and finish in fourth place? I hate the term backdoor finish because, quite honestly, like, what don't you want the guys to play the best on the weekends when it matters the most as opposed to, hey, he's a big Thursday player, but then he kind of just falls off? You, You want to play your best when it matters the most. That said, I just. I just don't know if I can see Rory McIlroy winning, but I also don't think he's going to be that far behind the winner either. If you look at all the course history statistics since Rory came here in 2015, he's by far the best. Scoring average, he's first. Strokes gain total. Strokes gain tee to green. He's got the most drives over 300 yards. He has the most one putts of anyone in this tournament since he came here in 2015. For wow. Time. A lot. Ten shots better in relation to par than any player at 52 under since 2015. All the course history stuff tells you yeah, this is this is somebody who's going to be worth that um, that spot at the top of the board. But I'm with you in terms of the win equity not being there. He hasn't won anywhere worldwide since the end of 2019. Um, it, it's, the big thing, though, not just not breaking through and getting a victory that kind of gets to me is just consistently since the pandemic hiatus ended, when they came back and played golf at Colonial in May, his iron numbers have not been the same as they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, this season, he's outside the top 100 in strokes gained approach. That's so sad. He was in the top 20 in each of the previous two seasons. Um, and I think that that's a, I mean, we talked about how important that statistic is, how important iron play is going to be this week. Um, I think he'll, he'll play all right. I, I don't see him winning this week simply because of, you know, what we've seen with his iron play over the last several months. Um, so I'm a little, I'm not as, I'm not as bullish on Rory as I would have been last year or even two years ago coming into this tournament. Okay, so we look at the top 10 on the board this week. Rory, of course, Victor Hovland, Bryson, Tyrrell Hatton, Patrick Reed, both at 18 to 1, Paul Casey, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Louis Oosthuizen, Sungjae Im all at 25, Hideki Matsuyama rounds out the top 10 at 28 to 1 as we speak right now. My play is out of that one. First of all, uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick has everything going for him this week. And by everything, I mean three specific things. First of all, he loves playing hard golf courses. He said it after Memorial last year, finished solo third. He goes, give me a really strong test of golf over a birdie fest every time. That's what this should be this week. And that shows in his recent results at Bay Hill, finished second to Francesco Molinari two years ago, 
ninth last year where he was the only guy to break 70 in either weekend round. And then the fact that he's trending in the right direction, fifth at Riviera, 11th at the concession. I don't have a spot where I look at Matthew Fitzpatrick. And oh, by the way, his first PGA Tour event, the first start he ever had in the U.S. was at this event seven years ago. And so I just can't look at him and say, uh, I don't know, there's something I don't like about him. I, I like everything. It almost fits too well this week, Justin. I think you're reading my notes. You literally just <laughs> rattled off like six things I'm looking at right in front of me. I'm all in on Fitzpatrick this week too to break through and get a win. Uh, try to I'm going to try to find things on my sheet that I have that you didn't say. One, he's second in strokes gain total of this event the last two years to Sung J M, uh, who Sung J's finished third and third in his two mm-hmm. starts at Bay Hill. Um, the other thing that's kind of an interesting trend at this golf tournament: five straight international winners going back to 1950 among the active tournaments on the PGA Tour. Only two streaks have been longer in terms of international winners. There were nine straight in Maui at one point, and that was a weird run where Stuart Appleby won three in a row. And, yeah. Um, it was kind of a – kind of. I think it, the the back end of that streak was uh, Daniel Chopra, I think, at the end of it. I mean, it was a – it was it's a motley crew if you go check out that list of winners. And then the only other one before that since 1950 is at the Open Championship when Peter Thompson won three in a row – or three or four in a row. And it was back in the 1950s regardless. So it doesn't happen that often is the point I'm trying to make in terms of international winners. So – you know, maybe something we said about tougher conditions. Um, if you said like the wind picks up on the weekend, that's another reason like Fitzpatrick. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, you know, he said it himself. You repeated it that he likes tough golf courses. You got to like tough golf courses. You want to win a U.S. Amateur, which is what he did um, earlier on in his uh, his career. Yeah, I like Fitzpatrick a lot too. The form is there. The numbers are there. Um, he's probably you know if I go off the board to pick a winner, um, that's probably where I see the most value in that top tier of players. Yeah, uh, that's my favorite play as well. I, I'm not sure I necessarily love anybody else in this top tier. I think Hatton will play well. Uh, I do like Sung J.M. Uh, based on what you said. You know, I, and I stole your notes. I, I didn't steal your notes on Fitzpatrick. I stole your notes from last week on him and Fleetwood being uh, the two best in strokes gained in Florida over the last few years. So I, I do like him. And speaking of Fleetwood, as we get into this middle tier, the 30 to ones and a little bit higher, uh, Fleetwood, I think, is a tremendous value play at 45 to 1. Uh, in, they, I, my guess is I'd have to go back and look, but my guess is Tommy Fleetwood was somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 20 to 1 going into this event a year ago. And so the fact that you can get the same golfer who admittedly hasn't played his best golf lately, but is still Tommy Fleetwood at 45 to 1, I think is really nice. Uh, I also look at Sam Burns. I, I don't like when, it, when it's the same number as Tommy, I don't necessarily love it, but still 45 to one on Burns who I love that his game travels a lot. And, and you're, you're raising your hands. Like I, I I'm exactly from you again. I'm my hands. Cause I'm all over Sam Burns as well. Let's go. I, I mean, look, the guy nearly won at Riviera took off last week. I mean, he was exceptional at Riviera through about, you know, what was it 60 holes and then uh, got caught. But uh, my favorite Sam Burns note, and that's, I came across this. Uh, it didn't work out as well last week because he didn't play, but I was doing some research for an article I wrote for PGTour.com about who are the best players in the state of Florida uh, over the last yeah. years. Burns is an amazing putter in Florida. He is through the roof. He's averaging like more than a stroke and a quarter, 1.3 strokes gained putting per round in Florida in his career, by far the best of any player over the last three seasons. Like, Four-tenths of a stroke better, which is, you know, adds up to a lot over the course of a week. Um, I've got him to top five 
And he's my first round leader pick because of how hot he's coming out of the gates the last few weeks. He had a uh, early 64 a couple weeks ago. He's, you know, of course, you know, was on fire at Riviera coming out of the gates. I mean, I feel like you've, you've looked through the screen and you've absorbed these. We're either on the total same wavelength with this, which is either really good or really bad. I can't decide which. Um, or, or you know, you're taking notes here, which I, which I'm not crazy about. But you okay, know. well, in that case, when we go a little bit lower, we're looking for guys who are maybe a little more, bit more value plays, or you know, end of the DFS line. Why don't you give me some of your names so that I'm not, you know, you can get them out there first, so it doesn't look like I'm taking them before you. How's that sound? Okay, this will give me a perfect opportunity to tell you my favorite statistic about Bay Hill. And I kind of came across it a few years ago, and it's really borne fruit over the last several years. Okay. So there are more approach shots at Bay Hill Club and Lodge outside of 200 yards than any other course on tour. It's not even close. Hmm. Uh, The last five years, the difference between Bay Hill and the next closest course in terms of approach shots from outside 200 yards is like 2,000 shots. So it's by far the most prevalent in terms of that type of approach shot on Mm -hmm. the PGA Tour. So looking at the numbers, and we this guy's name came up last week at the very end of the podcast, and the numbers bore him out this week. Uh, the player with the best proximity to the hole the last two seasons from that range is Will Gordon. He's the absolute best proximity to the hole outside 200 yards over the last two seasons. Second best on tour, just to give you some validity mm-hmm. of that of that statistic, of that trend, Tyrrell Hatton, your defending champion at Bay. Mm. So he's number two. Number one, Will Gordon, who was also fourth on tour in scoring average when he's from that distance away. So a top 10 finish, I've got him at plus 1,600. You know, using that logic, I think that's – if I'm going to ride with the numbers, if that's my calling card, let's, let's go – let's find us some value there with Will Gordon and those long irons. Now, I only listed him for a top 40, but he was in my preview that I already wrote. We're recording nice. this on Monday evening. I wrote Monday morning. The preview's out already. I've got Will Gordon listed on there. Very cautious play for a top 40 since I list guys in different categories. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm absolutely on board with that. A couple other guys with uh, numbers a little bit bigger than I thought they would be. Uh, Luke List, who has a nice intersection of recent form and course history. He's finished top 20 here. Didn't play for some reason last year, but top 20 each of his last three starts at this one, he's been top 30, three of his last four starts this year. So he's got some things going for him. And then one of the, oh yeah, what do you got on Luke List? I was going to say Luke List, he's fourth in strokes gain total per round at, at Bay Hill in the last five years. Only guys yeah. ahead of him, Rory, sorry, he's fifth in strokes gain total the last five years. Only guys ahead of him, Rory, Leishman, Molinari, Bryson. That's it. Oof, that's good company. And then, uh, I've mentioned this to you in the past, but one of my favorite stats, because I think it's so predictive, is final round ball striking numbers at the previous event. If the guy is playing four or five days later, I, I just think that if you can find something on Sunday, it can carry over. You spoke about that in relation to Rom, I believe, on last week's pod. Sebastian Munoz was fourth in strokes gained tee to green at the concession, first in strokes gained approach shots in that final round. At 110 to one, I don't hate him for an outright. And at 10 to one, I love him for a top 10. That's a great call. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't particularly work out for Rob last week, but more often than not, that's a guy who you figure is finding something with his golf swing. That's able to be predictive moving forward to the next week with that momentum. So uh, that's a great call. I think that's, that's significant value for somebody who had those kind of numbers at concession last week, a really difficult layout. 
All right, we've got to get to our DFS lineup. We've got to get to our five questions before we uh, get through all these other names. Anyone else you want to point out as a guy that is sticking out to you from any of those tiers that we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, I think Bryson is worth talking about a little bit. Oh. Um, and, and Finally, we disagree on one. Let's go, Jay Ray. Come okay, on. well, hear me out. Uh, his final – his uh, strokes game putting last week at the concession. I know he had that one total blow-up terrible round, but he had positive strokes game putting – over the course of an entire PGA Tour event for the first time since the U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a guy who's had two top fives here in the last three or four years at Bay Hill, um, the way he drove the ball on the weekend, if he just puts somewhere close to what he was doing around this time and then into the fall of last year, um, I think that's something to be contended with because I think his, his, his low is high. He's got that high floor. Um, and I know he's really high up on the board, so you might have to – you know, maybe, maybe there's not a ton of value there, but I think he's at least worth discussing because of that putting number. My problem with Bryson right now is that he's a tinkerer. We have, I mean, his entire game has been tinkered with. Uh, you look at uh, especially those photos from last week where he won the NCAA championship at the concession. And, you know, everyone showed like, oh, here's his, his, the distances with his clubs. Here's what he's look like. I mean, he's, he's changed everything since then. He has stopped tinkering with what he was doing last year that had worked for him. I don't necessarily disagree with it. I think he'd probably gotten too bulky. He's probably looking too much for speed and distance. He's probably got to dial it back a little bit. So he's, he's looking to get leaner. He's stopping as many, drinking as many protein shakes, not, not up to six or seven protein shakes a day. He is forgetting about going with the extra long driver and sticking with the regular length driver. I, I feel like he's still in the middle of tinkering. I feel like at some point he's going to find that secret formula that's working for him again. I just don't think it's there right now. I could see that. And I would also argue, I have no hard evidence of this, but he looks smaller now than he did in the fall. Yeah. I mean, I think he, I think he, you know, basically just probably just changed the diet. He's talked a little bit about modifying the way that, you know, the, the kind of way we, he got so much attention for the way he you know, planned his dieting with the protein shakes and everything um, last year when he had so much success, but he's kind of scaled back from that. Cause he think, you know, there was maybe some, some health questions there towards the end of the year. So um, I just thought that with that putting number with him putting together, finally a really good, not a really good, but a better than average week on the greens that he was at least worth the discussion. That's fair. I, I think he gets scared off of the masters. I really do. Uh, he talked about his health not being right. And he said, I don't know. I've got to get looked at. I've got to get some tests. I, I think he got scared off and started thinking about long-term. If I'm putting all of this into my body, what does that mean for my health? He's like, you know, maybe, I, maybe it'll make me play better golf in the short term, but uh, I'm going to live for a long time. I'm still a young guy. I'm going to be playing for a long time. What does it mean for me going forward? And I, I think that um, that really uh, changed his outlook a little bit. So let's get to our five questions for, for the first time. I've asked you the questions the first couple times you've been on the pod. And uh, finally, like the ball's in your court. Five minutes, five questions you never asked. I got to be honest with you. I get a little irritated when somebody calls me away from my golf. This is Five Under. I feel good about these. I like all five. Mr. Sobel, question one. We just saw a great performance, obviously, and a win from Colin Morikawa. Mm -hmm. Victor Hovland put together a great week, nearly won while making an eight, which would have been incredible. But mm -hmm. over the next five years, who will be the better player? Colin Morikawa or Victor Hovland? 
when they first turned pro and everyone was asking the question between Morikawa, Hovland, and Wolf, and we've now, Wolf has been WD'd from this conversation for the time being. Um, I was going with Hovland. I really, really like Hovland's game. I kind of think it's impossible. I, I'm not sure that Hovland goes with Hovland right now in that question. I have to go with Morikawa based on what we've seen, but I really like Hovland a lot. I still think, and, and it goes back to what I said earlier in the pod, Colin Morikawa has elevated himself to the best of the best in the world because he can win any place, anytime. There are courses where I look at Victor Hovland and Bayhill might be one of them where I say, ah, I just don't think it's a great course for him. And I don't say that about Colin Morikawa. What's a good comp from a couple of years ago for Hovland? I'm trying to think of one, like a guy who is really on the precipice. You feel like, like, would you be shocked at all if Victor Hovland won a major this year? No, no, that wouldn't shock me at all. Not at all. So maybe it feels a little bit like, I don't know. I'm trying to is think there, of somebody. Who is broke. there a 2016, 2017 JT comparison? Maybe. That's probably a better one. I was going to say maybe Patrick Reed before he won the Masters. Take the character stuff completely out of it. Yeah. Albert player. But I think Thomas might be a good comp. Better comparison simply because of the ball striking abilities um, that's just kind of a, the flair and ability to string a lot of birdies together too. Mm-hmm. Um, Hovland seems like he's a little more flashy, just a tad. Yeah. Yeah. Even, it's tough to say. Colin Morikawa's got four wins in a major already. I mean, you know, it's tough to it's tough to go wrong with either one. It's almost an impossible question to answer. Hovland led the field in strokes gained tee to green Saturday and Sunday, um, and Morikawa still beat him um, with with unbelievable iron play. So. I- I think what it comes down to is Morikawa has a higher ceiling right now, and he definitely has a higher floor than Hovland. And so you put those things together, and it's hard to say Hovland in any way is going to be better. But if we sat here five years from now in 2026, we, we do this podcast again, we're like, ah, I told you so. It was Hovland. I, I wouldn't be completely shocked either. Would be a pretty good singles Ryder Cup match this year. I, I'll sign, I'd up, sign for up for that. Right now. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right, number two. Uh, it was another week in contention for Brooks Kepka, despite mm-hmm. fighting a nagging neck injury. Does Brooks Kepka, and I'll give you this stat before I ask you the question, he's 83 under par in majors since 2016. That is 49 shots better than any other player in that span. Mm-hmm. Does an informed Kepka win a major in 2021? I'm going to go with the law of averages. And say no. There's just, he's won four of them. He's won I'm already influencing you. You're already you're already getting math tied into what you do. I mean, oh yeah, come on. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't even know how to count to ten before you started coming on the pod. Now I'm like, well, his strokes gained in ma- majors. Um, no, I I just think that law of averages at some point even things out. And you know, some Justin Thomas is better than a one major type player at some point. He adds another one. John Rahm is not a zero major type player. At some point, Xander Shoffley gets a lot of players. I mean, yeah, I'm going to say no for Brooks, but I will say this much. Speaking of this subject, and only because, I mean, I know they've been out there forever, but Jeff Sherman at Golf Odds on Twitter, our friend, uh, put out the Masters Odds. Uh, on Sunday night after Morikow had won. I'm sure Morikow's odds probably dipped a little bit. And I was looking at them, and there was one player who really, really intrigues me at his current number. 30-1. to 1. And you just said his name a minute ago. Patrick Reed, going back to Augusta. The way he's hitting the ball with his short game, and he's won there before, 
I, I'm real. I, I hate making a master's call a month and a half before the event. I always say, you know, whenever people ask for the master's pick, it's like, well, what's the weather going to be like? Who's in form? I, I can't just give you a master's pick in September for the next April. And just, you know, people think like, Oh, give me a master's pick. Who's going to win? It's like, well, I want, I have questions to ask you if you're going to ask me a question right now, if I had to make a futures play, if you said, here's, here's a hundred bucks, you have to put it all on one player as a futures bet for the masters. It might be going on the guy that everyone loves to hate. He just won against a really good field by six shots, right? Yeah. He won the masters a couple of years ago. He's yep. arguably got the best short game on tour. 30 to one. 30, 30 is low, man. That's by the way, that question, uh, make a master's pick. That is the second most asked question to golf writers on sports talk radio shows. The number one being is tiger back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also get a lot of who are the really nice guys on tour and man, they don't ask the numbers about. dork that they know I'm okay. not talking. Yeah, about. that's true. But, but yeah, yeah when, it's, it's tiger the, back and yeah. you have a pick for the masters. Yeah. It could be, it could be November and I'll get that. I, I think your answer to both is no right now. <laughs> No, he's not back, and no, I don't have a pick for you. Okay, number three, Jordan Spieth is making his debut this week at Bay Hill. Mm-hmm. He's finished in the top 15, top 15 each of his last three starts. Yes or no, a top 10 finish for Jordan Spieth this week in Orlando. This is a bet on karma. And I know I have some inside knowledge with some people at Bay Hill that uh, in Mr. Palmer's final years, he was a big fan of how Jordan Spieth played and he got to know him a little bit and he kept asking Jordan Spieth to play and the people around him kept asking Jordan Spieth to play. And then even after Mr. Palmer had passed away, the people who were running the tournament said, Hey, a lot of people are coming out to honor Mr. Palmer after he's passed away. Will you come play the tournament? And he never did. And this is the first time he's played. And as much as I like Jordan Spieth moving forward, as much as I've liked how he played in the previous three weeks, that three-week stretch of, what, fifth, third, and 15th or whatever it was, there's some karma this week. And Mr. Palmer, whether he's here or not, still rules over this golf course and this golf tournament, and I don't think he's rooting for Jordan Spieth this week. Wow. It's cold. But, I, I mean – some things you can't get the in the real research though. It's books, okay. J-Ray. No sugarcoating it. I asked you. I asked you. If you want a tough irons test, by the way, which is, you know, Speed has put together some pretty good iron numbers over mm-hmm. the last three starts. He's going to get it this week. This is a tougher test with the irons than, um, than Phoenix, than Pebble Beach. Um, I think it's, it's going to be a tough week. And for never playing there before, that's a lot to ask for a top 10 finish this week. Um, yeah. All right. So at concession, I mentioned this stat a couple times. Bryson posted his first positive strokes game putting performance on the PGA Tour since winning at Wingfoot. Will Bryson win between now and his U.S. Open title defense at Torrey Pines? You talked about the tinkering. Yeah. You know, that's a factor. You know, is, he, is his body changing a little bit? Is he dropping a little bit of weight? Does that impact the distances? But the talent is still, you know, omnipresent, obviously. Does he get a win between now and when we head to San Diego? I have been more bullish on Bryson over the last couple of years than most people. I think when a lot of people were saying, oh, he can't, you know, just bulk up and swing as hard as he wants and hit it a mile and think he's going to win golf. Tournament. I'm like, no, actually, based on the stats, like, yeah, that actually could and should work. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, like I said, I don't think 
he's in the right space right now. But yeah, I will say that he picks one off. He, he plays in before the U.S. Open. There's not a whole lot of random ones. Just after the U.S. Open, he may play a 3M Open or a Rocket Mortgage Classic. Which I was going to say the maybe past. the Byron Nelson at that new setup where we don't yeah. know a lot. Something yeah, like there's, there's not a whole lot of fields where he'll be the favorite or close to it that he's playing before the U S open. I, I, I will put an asterisk next to your question and say he wins by the end of the PGA tour season. Okay. Fair enough. I might not have a cutoff point and I felt like the title defense for the U S open. It was well played. Yes. So you may have already answered this one earlier in the podcast, but this is the one I wanted most. I wanted your answer most uh, for my fifth and final question. Got the home game this week, Arnold Palmer invitational. What is your favorite memory with Mr. Palmer, whether personal, professional, or otherwise. Oh, my goodness. How long do we have? <laughs> uh, a few of my first thoughts can't be said on air. Uh, everybody <laughs> listening, buy, buy me a beer someday, and I might tell you off the record. Uh, but, yeah, I got to spend a lot of time around Mr. Palmer. So when I was with ESPN, and for those listening, you might recall the, uh, the ESPN commercial where he's in the cafeteria and – he makes an Arnold Palmer and Scott Van Pelt and Stuart Scott are right near him. They're like, wow, that was so cool. My job that day was, as I mentioned earlier, picking Mr. Palmer up at the airport. I picked him up at the airport. He flew his Citation 10 right into the private airspace at, uh, at Bradley Airport in, in Hartford, Connecticut. I picked him up. We drove to Bristol. I was no further than five feet away from him for 10 hours and then drove him back to the airport at the end of the day. And we just hung out all day. And, you know, I brought him over here and did a commercial shoot and brought him over here and he did an interview with somebody. And we did this, we did that. I, did, I blogged the entire day. I did a live blog of hanging out with Arnold Palmer. And, you know, people like, what is, how does he order an Arnold Palmer? If he wants to drink an Arnold Palmer, does he say, can I have a me? No, this points I, to put a circle around his face. Go this right here. That's what I want. <laughs> very humble. You know, Mr. Palmer would say, can you get me an Arnie? That was it. it just, and, and I liked that. I was like, was like, Hey, you know that Arnold Palmer? That's me. Can I get one of those? No, it was, just wasn't him. Uh, he also, um, when I was with golf channel, uh, when I just moved down to Orlando, he came to the golf channel holiday party. And my wife was with me. She was about eight and a half months pregnant. And Mr. Palmer said hi to him, knew him somewhat well at that point and introduced him to my wife. And he just looked at her with his big belly and said, ah, you've been having some fun. <laughs> so, That's uh, yeah. terrific. so we had some stories together. He, uh, he honestly was for, for those who never got a chance to meet him or spend some time around him. Um, certainly I, I knew him less than a lot of other people, but I did get a chance to spend some time around him. And uh, yeah, he was, he was fantastic. He really was. He treated everyone uh, as if he was their best friend and he would go into a room and he knew everyone was there to see him. Everyone wanted to catch a glimpse of him and everyone wanted a picture with him. And he was happy to do it. He was just, he was the best. He really was. He probably understood more so than anyone else. I think Phil Mickelson's obviously done a great job of this, but I think that sometimes, you know, famous people either don't realize or don't necessarily care that, Hey, this is my one time ever that this person is going to see me. I'm going to make an impression on them. And sometimes people just say, look, I, I don't know. I'm having a bad day or you caught me at a bad moment. And you know, someone walks away going, uh, it was like kind of not that nice. 
And for the next 30 years, every time that guy's on TV, they'll say, ah, he wasn't that nice. Arnold Palmer made this great impression on everybody every single time, which is really hard to do. Absolutely. That's terrific stories, man. I knew you'd have a few, so I had to yeah. figure this was as good a time of any to um, – I was hoping to pry out the, the not, not safe for work ones, but – yeah, I'll have to uh, nah. I'll have to hit you up on outside of the podcast. Nah, yeah, can't do that. But no, nah, he was he was great. <laughs> Seeing him fly his plane in and literally like the steps go down. I mean, and he was in the pilot seat. He just walks down. Hi, I'm Arnold Palmer. I'm like, well, yeah, I know it says it on your damn plane. <laughs> he was great. He seriously was great. So uh, we're gonna get to our DFS lineup in just a second. But first. We talk a lot on this podcast about finding an edge, putting the work in, finding opportunities, and betting on them. And one easy way to lose your edge is to get absolutely hammered and start betting games. Huh, I don't know who they're talking about there. And that's why we want to tell you about our friends at Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing was founded by these two guys, Bill and John, who loved craft beer, but realized the flavors they loved weren't always available and non-alcoholic, like at all. So they started Athletic Brewing, And now they've won awards, they've expanded their brewery. These guys are killing it. Athletic Brewing sent us beers to drink and because they're not alcoholic, they're only 50 to 70 calories a piece. Actually, Justin, you know this, they taste really good. So if you're looking to hammer a second half line without getting hammered yourself, these beers are a great option. So if you wanna support this show, head to athleticbrewing.com, check out their selection, place an order. And we've got a code for you, ACTION15. You type in Action 15 at athleticbrewing.com and new customers get 15% off their order. If you order two or more six packs, which why wouldn't you? Shipping is always free. That's athleticbrewing.com. Code Action 15 on that first order and enjoy the flavor while keeping that gambling edge. I'll get some, some of that in my immediate future with my pending daddy drive to the hospital tasks yes. that are on my, on my radar here in the coming months. So. Uh, I'll definitely be enjoying a few of those. All right, me too. Uh, yeah, I, I love, uh, I love beer. I love non-alcoholic beers. Good to have on a podcast. Been in certain situations where um, the non-alcoholic beer would have been better than the alcoholic beer in podcasting and other types of situations. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that, Justin. You can, uh, you can use your imagination for the rest of it. Want to be a DFS millionaire? You're just one lineup away. We're going to go nose to nose with him. And you're going to play better than you ever dreamed of. Because, God damn it, that's what I demand of you. So let's get drafting. Let's get to our DFS lineup. We do it on the pod every single week. We'll go through DraftKings back and forth, pick six players. Uh, based on our conversation earlier, I have a feeling we're just going to pick, like, all of the players that we each like and just be on the same page with everything. But uh, uh, why don't you start it off and, and we'll see what we got. So when you build a lineup, do you like? I usually go to the bottom first. I try to, and then I'm able to pluck out towards the end guys who are a little bit more expensive. You know, so because I think the guys, the guys towards the bottom, that's where you're trying to find the most value, and that's kind of mm-hmm. where you know you hone in on first. So the first guy I'm going with, I've already talked about. He's the best on tour from outside 200 yards at the beginning of last season. We talked about how significant that statistic is at Bay Hill. Will Gordon's just $6,500. I think there's. That's going to be a good player to round out the base of the team. De- at the minimum, makes the cut. I've got money on him this week, to top 10. Maybe that's a little bit pie in the sky, but I think we started out with Will Gordon. I like the strategy. Uh, 
me personally, I have no strategy. I just like start like pressing buttons, like, ooh, line up. Boom, 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 boom. Well, okay, got one. strategy ever worked. I mean, especially <laughs> not when I try to make an NFL lineup because I'm, I'm there 30 minutes before kick and I'm picking defense first, thinking that's going to help me, and it never does. So, you know. Uh, but golf, I've had much more success over the years. And uh, we'll start with Will Gordon. And it also gives my esteemed partner the opportunity to go wherever he wants. At least with NFL, like you're stacking, okay, quarterback with the receiver. I want that combo. And now I'm going to go with a running back on a different team with maybe a low scoring, kind of grinded out kind of game. That, it, there's more factors, more variables in it. Golf is like, man, pick guys and make lots of birdies and post good scores. I, it's like, all right, you got anything else for me? Uh, hitting it next to the hole is good. Anyway, Will Gordon out of the gates, first draft pick. I will stick with your strategy, and I'll go with the guy that I mentioned that played really well on Sunday at the, uh, the concession. Good ball striking numbers. Only 6,700, which I think is a really good bargain for Sebastian Munoz. Okay, Sebastian Munoz. we got a lot of money left to play with. Yeah. Um, going back towards the top of the board, Let's go with the guy that we both loved. Um, we said that he's our favorite outright play for the week. Uh, back-to-back top tens in this tournament, second strokes gain uh, total at Bay Hill the last two years. Had another good week of concession, been informed. Matt Fitzpatrick, 9,800. That's a little more money than I'd like to spend for Matt Fitzpatrick, but he's proven himself to be a little bit different player the last month than he has been the rest of his career, I think. Yeah, everything's a little too much on Fitz this week. I, I was hoping the odds would be somewhere around 30 to 1 instead of 25. I was hoping his DFS price was 9,000 instead of 97. But uh, it's I, I still love the play, and I'm not going to shy away based on the number next to it. Uh, for my pick, I'll spend a little money here. This is a guy we didn't really speak about, but I, I have a feeling you'll like him. I know you called him out a few weeks ago at Riviera. Uh, obviously won this golf tournament the last time he played. Uh, two years ago and didn't play last year, but Francesco Molinari tears up this golf course. His record here is fantastic. Never outside uh, the top 35. and He's had a bunch of top 10 finishes and he's trending in the right direction. So I think it's all sort of moving in the right direction for Francesco Molinari to play well this week. You like that? I'm, I'm with you. And I mentioned that Rory leads every statistic, basically the last five years at this golf course, Francesco's second, basically okay. in everything. So um, I think that's a good price for him. Uh, didn't, you know, he had a good week at Riviera a couple weeks ago. I, li- I liked him as the super underdog before my power went out uh, <laughs> that, because he was a new member there. But really his form has been getting better and he's looking more like the player who won the Open Championship a couple years ago and less like the guy who has kind of had his life thrown into a tornado like so many people had did during the, the, uh, the COVID stuff from last year. So I like the play and we've got a good amount of money left. Um, I'm going to leave you with some change on the back end you here. Can spend not, it not if just, you want. Not just nickels and dimes. I think you're, you're going to have some, some money left to play with because I'm going to stick with the guy I picked to be the first round leader because of how good he's gotten out of the gates. Nearly won at Riviera. Um, I really like his game a lot. I really think Sam Burns, especially those numbers I talked about in terms of his putting in Florida uh, on these types of green complexes, Sam Burns at 8,400. That probably, that's probably a little more money again than I'd like to spend for for Sam Burns. But this is kind of a maybe a slightly weaker field at Bay Hill than we're that we're used to seeing um, in years past with kind of the newer schedule. So um, let's go Sam Burns at 8,400, and that's going to give you 9,900 left. 9,900 left. First of all, I like Burns a lot. Uh, with 9,900, that leaves the highest priced player available at 9,700 now. Sometimes 
you want to dig a little deeper. You don't necessarily want to spend all the money. You know, you want to think about things. Sometimes you can overthink things. The guy at 9,700 is Sung J.M., who happens to have a record of third, third at the Arnold Palmer Invitational. And as you mentioned earlier, and as I stole from your article on PJTour.com last week, he leads the tour in strokes gained in Florida. How, what is that, over the last couple of years? Last four years. Four years. Okay. So, I, I mean, yes, I could bypass Sungjae for a Hideki or a Jordan or a Jason Day. I don't love any of those guys. If I was going to do it, I'd go, I guess, down to Tommy Fleetwood at 9000 If I really wanted to differentiate and leave $900 out there, I don't. I want to go with Sungjae M. I'm not going to overthink it. There's our lineup. Sam Barnes, Matt Fitzpatrick, Will Gordon, Sungjae M, Francesco Molinari, and Sebastian Munoz. I, I, I really like it. I mean, I, I, I – Every I, week. Every I, week. We're going to come up with this, and we're going to look at it and say – that is gold. That is yeah. that is a million maker winner right there. Lock it in. I may use this lineup as sort of a base, and I don't know if other people out there do it, but uh, use this one, have these six guys, and then do another one where I take out Munoz for a Matt Wallace, and I take out him for a Tommy Fleetwood or something like that and keep the other four guys there and then play around with it and keep four other ones and take two others out. But I, I think this is a good, strong base of – a couple of high-priced guys, a couple of mid-tier guys, a couple of lower guys that I think could really work this week. Let's make some money. That's the whole point. We're trying to make some money around here. So, uh, Jay Ray, thanks so much for everything. He's Justin Ray, uh, head of content from the 15th Club, who joins me on the pod every time. I am Jason Sobel. From Golf Bet, you can catch our show, The Gimme, every Wednesday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Check your local social channels for that thanks so much to everybody for listening good luck with all of your plays for this week's arnold palmer invitational here's hoping you get the green we're finished talking